Led by and for women and people of color in New Mexico, Bold Futures builds communities where people have what we need to make real decisions about our bodies and lives. For Bold Futures, culture shift means creating art, messages, and media to shape narratives that matter. From Bold Futures and part of the ongoing Religious Refusals Culture Shift collaboration, this is the second season of Heart of New Mexico, a limited series examining religious refusals and its impact on New Mexicans and their families. A religious refusal is when an individual or institution refuses to provide care or services to others based on their own religious beliefs. For indigenous people, religious refusals have been ongoing since the beginning of colonization and is deeply rooted within the healthcare system tribes and pueblos access every day. In 2020, Bold Futures, the ACLU of New Mexico, and the New Mexico Dream Team held a virtual convening on religious refusals. This episode is a roundtable discussion from that convening centering Indigenous voices and expertise. Panelists Rachel Lorenzo from Indigenous Women Rising and Anna Rondon talk about the Hyde Amendment and its impact on Indigenous people. The discussion is facilitated by Angel Charlie from the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. It's an honor to be here with everyone. Goatzi Hopa, my name is Angel Charlie. I'm the Executive Director of the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. We'd like to begin with a land acknowledgement. And so for all of the panelists, when you introduce yourselves, please let us know where you are and the territorial land that you are speaking from today. For myself, I am on Pueblo land, a Tiwa territory in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Before I hand it over to our panelists today, I'd like to just give a quick overview um, of what we'll be talking about. So throughout the Southwest, at Spanish colonial contact, indigenous systems of power were interrupted and violently replaced with hierarchical structures that reinforce the disproportionate system of power. A power structure that continues to ensure the oppression of indigenous women. Today, we will specifically discussed reproductive oppression, still being experienced by New Mexico Indigenous women through the Hyde Amendment by the Indian Health Service. So we'll talk a little bit about what IHS or Indian Health Service is. We'll talk a little bit more about the Hyde Amendment and its impacts on Indigenous women. We'll go over a recent survey by Strong Families New Mexico and Southwest Women's Law Center that include findings on the attitudes of Indigenous and Pueblo people on reproductive health care. So with that, I'd like to turn it over to our two panelists, Rachel and Anna, if you would please welcome your names, your pronouns, your titles, and your organizations, and a land acknowledgement for where you are. Yate everyone out there. Uh, my name is Anna Rondon. I'm uh, born for the Kia'ani. Uh, clan, which is a towering house, and uh, born for Nakaiden Mexican clan. And my grandfathers on my mother's side are Tapaha, and my knowledge are Nakaiden. I'm here in a place called Chechota. It's about, and I am a woman, a son, and she, her. Thank you for this opportunity to be with these strong women. Thank you. Yate uh, I am um, from the Mascuero Apache tribe um, and Laguna Pueblo, which is where I grew up. 
Currently, I reside on Tiwa territory in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I use they, them pronouns, and I'm one of the co-founders of Indigenous Women Rising, and I manage our abortion fund, which serves Indigenous people all over the country. Thank you so much, Anna and Rachel. And so just to give our audience a little bit of an understanding of the format, so we'll talk a little bit to Rachel first, and then we'll talk a little bit to Anna, and then we'll all come back together and discuss some of the bigger issues and maybe themes that have come up. But Rachel, let's go right ahead and start with you. Can you give us an overview of what is IHS or Indian Health Service? Yes, um, so Indian Health Services is a federally run health care program which is a treaty responsibility. It's something that we are entitled to as Native people. It was established in 1955 in the exchange for the lands that the United States stole from us and coerced our people into either giving up, giving up the right to or being forcibly removed from our ancestral homelands. The IHS, while it is incredibly problematic, is still a lifeline for a lot of Indigenous people um, who rely on it for health care. Um, there are so many issues ranging from coercion and forced sterilization to the lack of consistency in um, the types of services that IHS provides. And I always use this as an example because non-Native people are always so like in shock almost that people can grow up so far away from an emergency room and from an OBGYN. And the IHS that I grew up with, which is located in Acoma Pueblo, but the IHS, that IHS has no consistent ER. Um, a lot of times there aren't fully licensed MDs. They might be newly minted interns who just graduated from medical school who are overseeing the emergency room. I remember having to wait about six weeks to get seen for dental appointments because our main dentist um, had to rotate between IHS-funded um, dental facilities throughout New Mexico, or my parents would have to shell out the money um, if I needed to get seen sooner and pay out of pocket in the city. If someone were to go into labor, having any kind of medical emergency, again, there's no guarantee that they would have to, that they would um, be able to be seen at ACL, they would have to go 30 miles west to Grants or come 50 miles east to Albuquerque to get seen. There isn't the greatest postpartum care or breastfeeding support um, within IHS. And so our families really lose out on the kinds of care that are a little more readily available, um, at least geographically um, in the city. Well, that's not like unique to where I grew up. It's pretty par for the course for IHS facilities all over the country. There's no consistency, like I said, of what kind of care is provided. And there's also a huge need to educate tribal leaders about what kind of health care IHS could be providing through something called a 638 contract. So yeah, uh, it's a lifeline, but it's a very incomplete lifeline. And especially during COVID, it was, COVID was just the straw that broke the camel's back, unfortunately. I mean, um, the, 
the pressure of a pandemic really exposed the shortcomings of IHS and not even being able to to address basic things like broken bones, let alone a deadly virus. Thank you, Rachel, and thank you for letting folks know and have like a really good understanding of the healthcare system that so many tribal women people um, have access to, or rather don't have access to, right? Um, so the next question, we're gonna get a little bit more into the federal legislation. So there's federal legislation that is imposed on people accessing healthcare through IHS called the Hyde Amendment. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so the Hyde Amendment is a, um, I believe it's a, it's a, on every appropriations bill, it's, they call it, I think it's called a writer, um, but it essentially says that the Hyde Amendment will not pay, will not use federal funds for abortion um, or abortion-inducing, they call them abortifacients, um, which, you know, pills or medication that will stop a pregnancy um, unless it's life of the, they call it, they say life of the mother, but life of the pregnant person, rape or incest. And those three um, categories are kind of like the litmus test for, you know, whether someone is going to support uh, certain kinds of abortion legislation or, or whatever, you know, is that the bare minimum that a bill or something would cover, right? Um, but it's up to states if they cover abortion or have some kind of system set up to support the state's constituency when it comes to pregnancy and pregnancy-related care. So the way that um, it impacts IHS specifically is that the Hyde Amendment, IHS is chronically underfunded and the last report that was done a few years ago showed that IHS is underfunded $6 billion. And so when we look at the Hyde Amendment and we see incredibly high rates of sexual assault and domestic violence and the rate of missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and LGBTQ relatives. We can't even handle those, let alone the reproductive health of our, of our people. And so the Hyde Amendment places an extra burden on indigenous people. And like I said, there's no consistency in care um, across the country, but there's also no consistency as far as what medical directors of IHS hospitals are or want to do when it comes to pregnancy from the time that a native person in the IHS healthcare system finds out that they're pregnant. Some providers might say, might check in with them and say, you know, what are you feeling? What are your initial thoughts? How do you think you want to move forward? And might open up a conversation about abortion. Back in 2017, we actually tried to survey medical directors about what they were telling people if they or what their guidance was to their providers if a patient said that they wanted to terminate their pregnancy. And it got around <laughs> that we were calling. And so it got to a point where medical directors weren't taking our calls anymore. But the folks that we were able to talk to indicated that they would just say, well, we can't do an abortion here. So you're just going to have to Google the nearest Planned Parenthood. And the lack of information is also incredibly harmful because Legally, on one side, you can't 
provide you have a facility or a federally run institution that can't provide abortions and then to make matters worse you have medical providers who are uh, leveraging their medical knowledge their and their power within this institution to dictate how providers talk about abortion and that's not their place we have always had abortions since time immemorial um, through drought and famine and just not wanting to be pregnant um, and through migration abortion has always been here and so it just really hurts to think that you know we have the Hyde Amendment that dictates how funds are used for or not used for our health and then you have people making these very paternalistic arbitrary decisions about how to approach abortion care and just assume that Native people want to start prenatal care as soon as they find out that they're pregnant. So it's really harmful in, in a lot of different ways uh, beyond just the funding. It's the lack of awareness or knowledge or willingness to share information about where we can get abortion care. And to be clear, there are, to my knowledge, no abortion abortion care clinics or, or providers located on reservations anywhere across the country. Thank you. And thank you for sharing that last piece. I think that's really important for people to understand. So when we're talking about the Heidemann, we're talking about federal money as, as a bill or as a provision. So IHS cannot provide abortion services because of the Hyde Amendment, which constitutes that federal money cannot be used to perform abortion services. So can you tell us a little bit more, Rachel, about um, the work that Indigenous Women Rising is doing to educate people on this? Yeah, um, we publicly, the, the front-facing work that we do, we follow the lead of Bold Futures and All Above All and National Network of Abortion Funds on how to talk about the Hyde Amendment but where folks don't see how we're educating people on this is with our with the callers to our abortion fund the last two weeks we've seen an uptick of people calling us because they need help and they had needed to put off help for or they've needed to put off care for the last couple of months and weeks because of covid and now they're finally able to get the care that they need um, and so when they find out that they're pregnant, they call us for help because the clinic refers the, the caller to us. And there are more and more people asking, why doesn't IHS or why doesn't the clinic at my res cover abortion? And so it turns into a very long phone call to, to educate our own callers about the Hyde Amendment. And people that we're talking to are really upset. They're like, but I am in a violent situation or I'm trying to finish school or I'm not just taking care of my kids anymore. Now my grandma, the nursing facility that my grandma was at, now she's home and I have to care for her too. Like I can't do this. And there is no reason that is not valid for needing or wanting an abortion. The reasons don't matter to us. What matters is that they have a very clear understanding of what the Hyde Amendment is and how it impacts them. And we get those callers as followers and hopefully one day we'll get them as organizers and bring them into this movement because 
we need each other um, and we need more representation in this movement towards reproductive justice. So really the education is happening with the callers um, when they're finding out they're pregnant and don't understand why IHS won't cover it for them. Thank you, Rachel. And so now we'll turn it over to Anna to kind of talk a little bit more about the survey from Strong Families New Mexico and Southwest Women's Law Center. So Anna, can you tell us a little bit more about this survey? Why did Strong Families take part in it? And what is it? Well, the survey started, um, and it's been in a process for about three years in designing the, the study. And the reason being that pushed the groups to create this um, survey and get the voices of the women and, and others that participated in the survey from the different indigenous nations, it was important that their voices, the foremost um, women that are in, impacted by the lack of access to um, health care in, in terms of um, abortion care. So it was the foremost is elevating the voice and gathering the data and, and perceptions of, of the women and perceptions of the public about the right to have an abortion. Um, also, there were several different bills as well nationally that prohibits um, abortion. And it goes really back to what we find is, you know, genocide, genocidal tendencies that we've been enduring um, since the, uh, the invasion. And now we're dealing with the country under its Supreme Court laws, a constitution that needs to be amended because we're still not human. No matter what Supreme Court says, they are bound by the constitution. And it says that we are subhuman and we are subjected to their authority. Until those articles are amended, even the, for the African-American and for um, people of color as well, slavery. Slavery is alive and well. Because if you read the Constitution, it says, unless you're committed a crime. So slavery is still alive. And there's a movement, a national movement to become uh, amending the Constitution, which is a, a Christian, white, male document to kill that's what it is and now it's not only has killed and and using for genocidal policies but it's killing the rest of the american people so anna we i really wanted to get into some of the key findings in the survey um and you touched on this a little bit when you were talking about um getting kind of the people who took the survey what some of their thoughts and processes were um, in taking it. So, so I'm very curious, what were some of the key findings? Um, Anna, is, was there anything that was surprising to you? 89% of the, of the participants of the survey stated that it is the right, they believe it's the right of the woman to make the decision uh, to have an abortion. And, you know, I thought it was going to be like 60%, but that was, to me, overwhelming support for the for the women. 
to have the right to make their own decisions. I really feel that gives a lot of support and hope to women that have had abortions. Um, to see that data, that people support them. And, you know, the data is to also share the stories. Um, but having the report, having it, uh, getting to our legislators and through forums like this, because a lot of our people are not even engaged in these types of conversations. But, um, you know, the, the epidemic of the child abuse and, and I just want to see some data from the uh, emergency rooms or the hospitals. Uh, we need to make our Indian Health Service accountable as well. We need accurate data that we can't even have access to, to really tell the truth of what's going on in our communities. It's been so suppressed. So I think this report is a gateway or a key to open the door for more policy change, for more truth telling in, in, in this um, topic, um, because it's so intertwined over the 500 years to now uh, with the injustices that are still um, impacting our people. Thank you, Anna. And when we started this conversation, we started it talking about kind of the systems of power and the disproportionate power that the system holds and what the intent of that is, which is to oppress our communities and continue practices of genocide. But I digress. <laughs> so I wanted to talk a little bit about a little bit more about the survey. Um, so we're here today talking about the Hyde Amendment as a religious refusal. And as I was going through the um, report, there was something really interesting in here that I'd like to, to ask you about. So reading directly from the report, during the course of the debate about the bill, talking about the, the abortion bill, um, legislators often spoke for Native communities, claiming that Native Americans are against abortion due to cultural and religious beliefs. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how the survey directly impacts conversations with communities going forward? Um, I can speak to that. Strong Families held a legislative roundtable in Gallup uh, last year. And, and so we were talking about the abortion bill, I mean the abortion amendment and uh, Strong Families uh, gave testimony. and. And it got very heated because uh, one of our strong advocates, Noreen Kelly spoke, she's Dene, spoke straight to him because he was saying that he got phone calls from a lot of Navajo um, people saying that they don't support abortion, that we never did it. And you know, it's, it's a lie. And he was called out and he got very defensive at that time. And so, um, that is what this is referencing, at least at this one incident that we all witnessed. And everybody started pounding the tables. Oh my God. But we told them it was a lie. You're lying. And so we really do have to have these conversations with these um, decision makers. False narrative. Thank you, Anna. That's exactly right. A false narrative and um, 
breaking the cycles of people speaking on behalf of our communities when they're not from our communities are not directly impacted by the systems in which we encounter as indigenous people. So thank you for reiterating all of that. So I'd like to invite Rachel back into the conversation and thank you, Anna, for all of that. So I just wanted to open up the conversation a little bit more about body autonomy for indigenous and Pueblo people in particular. Um, do either of you wanna talk a little bit more about that? And then why it's important to talk about body autonomy when, when we're talking about these larger issues? Yeah, um, this is such a good question because I think what, if you're not San Pueblo, so I'm gonna speak from that perspective and that experience, it's so striking to me that non-native people might, you know, we talk about uh, tribal sovereignty and government to government relationships and all of these things that make, that like build up that rhetoric around like how we are sovereign people. Um, but I wanna point out like, nearly every government, I think except Hickoria Apache is led by men. Their entire tribal council Laguna might have like one or two women on it, but our tribal constitution does dictate like the gender makeup of our tribal council. And on one hand, we have like, we have tribal sovereignty. And then on the other hand, we have like this huge gender gap uh, in representation within our tribal government. And growing up very traditional and my husband who is very, also very, very traditional, and we do our best to raise our children in tradition with whatever we know. And um, for folks don't know, like my husband is antelope clan, which is not supposed to be this way, but is at like the top, the hierarchy, I guess, of, of clan. And there are so many people within my own community who are like, you know, this is a woman's place and then this is the man's place. and. There's no, um, there's no room to not live in those boxes when it comes to our culture and our tradition and hanging on to the language. And I have two really old Karis dictionaries that have words and descriptions for gender variant people. Gukwimu is another, is, is one of them. When I grew up hearing that word Gukwimu, it was used to make fun of effeminate boys, of boys who were very feminine or thought to be gay. And that, like, it just shows how permeated our cultures are with these very Western beliefs um, around gender roles, around the way that our governments are formed. A lot of our, our Pueblo governments are formed after Spanish forms of government. That's not traditional. We know that our traditions and our um, our our lifestyles were matrilineal and matriarchal. And when you look at our healthcare, that has such a huge impact on our healthcare because it's men helping IHS make these decisions about what they're buying into when it comes to Indian Health Services, when it comes to tribally run clinics. We don't have great sex education, just like anywhere else, but for us especially, it's really hard to just have conversations about periods. And I'm also Apache. We celebrate our periods. 
why is it when I have a puberty ceremony to celebrate this very natural thing and where I am considered sacred, a deity, I am the creator of all mankind during that puberty ceremony, and then I have to come back to this westernized world and periods are gross and tampons are like slid under tables or, or handed off very discreetly. Like, what does that say about how much, about how stigmatized nat our natural bodies are? That doesn't leave any room for us to have these really tough discussions. So I would, if there are ever any Native men watching this, I put it to, I challenge you to start having those conversations and challenging your preconceived notions about the role of transgender, non-binary people and women within your own Native community, because it's, it's kind of killing us. <laughs> Thank you so much for that, Rachel. That's a really important perspective um, and just truth. It's very important truth. Anna, did you want to add anything? Um, but I wanted to give you time and space to talk about um, body autonomy and what that means for indigenous, indigenous people and why that's important. Oh, yeah. It goes back to our, you know, the holy people like uh, Rachel mentioned, you know, we are sacred and... I think a lot of us daily, we try to get and stay connected. You know, we have all this other noise going on and, and we're in these different boxes and um, trying to liberate ourselves. Um, but <clears throat> I think um, it's, it's all right. And I'm so glad that uh, during the 2011, that Idle No More really sparked a lot of, um, uh, movement among indigenous women and it's still carrying on today and the prayers are manifesting in in, in different forms um, such as this you know whenever women um, are, are coming together there's always power and and remembering that is is sometimes difficult for us because we have been so oppressed. But um, I think now we're going through this, this time of uh, purification and rightfully the women are the life givers. And it's time that, you know, we start teaching our, our children, our grandchildren and leaving a legacy, leaving the stories because that's the only thing that is going to help them in the future. Some of us were lucky to learn some of our ways, but a lot of our, our people, our millennials, have not really gravitated to traditional teachings. And I think that's the key for a lot of this healing and fighting. Thank you, Anna. Thank you so much for that. Um, so we'll go ahead and... Hide is a huge injustice for all women, but for Native women and people more than anyone. In the meantime, and aside from the financing of abortion services, which abortion funds play a huge role in, giving the increasing restrictions at the state level and the tribal sovereignty of tribal nations, if there has ever been any momentum behind provisions or delivery of medication abortion services on tribal lands. So, and then a follow-up to that, can tribal sovereignty be leveraged or enacted in this way? So, I'll, Rachel, I can see you ready to. 
I love this question so much. So um, I can't go into too much detail on this, um, but yes, there is growing movement behind the scenes to figure out how we can get um, people the abortion care that they need in a timely way without them really having to leave their homes. Um, there is a, a study out of um, Genuity uh, where they are doing telehealth abortion care for people under 10 weeks and they are um, shipping um, people in, I believe it's 13 states, um, the, med the medication abortion. Um, so there, there is movement and I definitely think that there is room for, um, for tribal governments to leverage their sovereignty to ensure um, uh, abortion care. I'll point to Cecilia Fire Thunder in the Plains, who was the first woman to serve as chair of her tribe and was outed um, because in, I think it was North Dakota, they had um, an abortion ban bill. Um, and there was a documentary made on it. And we fundraise off of that documentary. You can go to our Instagram and, and check it out. But um, she got outed because she wanted to be, um, or she wanted to make sure that not just Native people, but everyone in her state could access abortion on their reservation and make sure that no one had a gap in care. And I feel that is such a beautiful thing and such an Indian thing to do is to make sure that it's not just about your own, it's not just about your family, it's about your entire clan, your entire community, your band. And she was thinking of poor white women and poor black women who would not be able to access abortion and how the reservation would be a safe haven for them to get uh, judgment-free care. So there's absolutely um, movement building there, uh, but it also takes the unfortunately political willingness of Native men to accept that y'all aren't just it, like us too. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. Anna, is there anything that you wanted to add to the to answer this question in particular? Um, what I did want to mention is that the 29% of the respondents felt that um, they're not getting the adequate care from IHS. And those are the ones that are going. 29% are not getting adequate care. 75% um, <clears throat> say they don't use IHS services frequently um, because of the, um, the lack of quality care. Um, but it is a sovereignty right, you know, and um, based on our Diné fundamental law, which supersedes this foreign government that's in Windorock, um, and we need to exercise our rights. And I keep saying this <laughs> for the past 10 years, we have to take our fire poker to that council chambers and make a stand that it's the women rights. But hopefully maybe the next generation may do that, but time's running out.
So, so we're getting um, into the last maybe 10 minutes. And so I'm wondering, Rachel and Anna, what do you want people to walk away with? How to support these organizations uh, financially and with networking more, uh, helping with the legislation um, and being in tune with the, with the laws and the incidents that are happening out there. Please um, <clears throat> record stories from some of the women that you're close with that they give permission. You know, we, we have to create these stories. And, and I hope that folks educate. Uh, Rachel, I'll turn it over to you. What, what do we need to walk away from? Walk away with? Just include us. Like, we have so much to offer and we're, we're real, some of us are good cooks and good bakers. Like, we're happy to try to share a meal in a safe COVID friendly or COVID, respect COVID. Do not mess with that shit. Um, but we're happy to try to share what, what we have with you and share our stories. Like, we want to be part of this movement. Um, we want to collaborate with as many people as possible and know that um, IWR started because there's hardly any representation of me, of my cousins, of you in this movement. And we're getting there. It's taken seven years, <laughs> but we're getting there. And I'm so proud of what we've done, but walk away with um, uh, encouragement to go to our website, to go to um, uh, our social media, look at who we're following, go follow them and follow it and be, look at your workspace and look at whatever meetings you're in and understand that wherever you are, there was an original, there was a group of people who sacrificed their lives and their families and their hopes and their dreams. So you could be in the city. So you could sit in that office. So you could be in your home. Um, so you could be a homeowner, so you could rent an apartment or whatever it is that you're doing that wherever you are, please think about who died literally for you to be able to just wake up today in your home. Thank you, Rachel. Anna, um, we lost you for just a a second sorry about that but I want to hand it back over to you what what do we need to walk away from this conversation with I think it's very to me it's it's always reinvigorating and heartwarming to see all these young indigenous women stepping up oh my god my heart is just so so happy because you you are all carrying on this fight, you know. Um, I'm going to be 63 this year, and my my mom um, really taught me how to speak out, and she was one of my, uh, my really close mentors. But it's through your grandmothers, your sisters, your aunties. I just love each and every one of you. Give me hope. And I hope that this movement grows. It's like you said, we owe it to our ancestors and to those living today and those that are coming after us. 
Thank you, Auntie. I appreciate that. Um, okay, so I just want to leave this a little bit. We talked about our organizations, but um, let's leave folks with a call to action. Uh, Rachel and Anna, what can people do now? Right now, um, we have uh, an abortion fund and a midwifery fund. Um, we have links to those on our website, so please donate. We're Indigenous 365 days a year, not just on Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, we also ask um, that you research trans-led organizing and invest in Black trans leadership. There is no liberation without our Black and transgender relatives. And I will lift up um, SNAP for Freedom, which is based out of Atlanta, Georgia. So please support them. We have an art kit um, that you can download for free if you go to our Instagram, the link in the bio. Um, we contracted two indigenous artists to create coloring pages and we have political education that's family friendly. You can do with your kids. This movement starts at home. So download the coloring book and get creative. Thank you, Rachel. Anna, what's your call to action today? Well, you know, there's an African-American woman. She's a congressional leader uh, reigniting the fire to um, appeal to repeal the um, Hyde Amendment. Uh, con yes. uh, Congresswoman Presley. Yes. Yes. So she has uh, actions that we could uh, sign on to as well. But um, I would, I think that's a good um, sending off on next steps. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Anna. And um, I just want to leave the space in so much gratitude for the two of you, um, for Indigenous Women Rising. Recognize that our calls to action were ways in which we support other women. When women come together, it is powerful. And to Rachel's point, Indigenous women need to be a part of every single one of these conversations. We live with our history very close to us. And so, um, we need to be at those tables as well. Um, but thank you all for joining us today. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Many thanks to panelists Rachel and Anna and facilitator Angel for participating in the 2020 Religious Refusals Convening and for digging deeply into the Hyde Amendment's impact on Indigenous people in New Mexico. Continue on with the Bold Futures podcast by subscribing to Heart of New Mexico and the second season of our limited series about religious refusals on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and on our website at boldfuturesnm.org backslash heart of New Mexico. Follow us on social media as well. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.